You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 88 of Distilling Theology. I'm your co-host, Blake Courtright, joined as always by the bad Baptist bear, Justin Van Riper. How you doing, Justin? I am just doing absolutely perfect. <laughs> well, before we jump into our interview with Dr. Matthew Barrett, professor of theology at Midwestern uh, Theological Seminary, um, on his book, Simply Trinity, uh, Justin, what's in our glass tonight? Well, if I can look at the right notes, we have Glenn Morangi, 14 year, uh, which I'm excited about. Um, yeah, I, I am actually looking at the wrong notes. Uh, it is a port cask finish, um, 46% ABV. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this particular distillery. I know that they were founded in 1843, but what else? Tell you me know, more. Tell me why. Um, well, I honestly don't know a super ton about the Glenmorangie distillery. However, uh, I will say I was not super impressed with their tenure. And then we tasted it, um, when we had the Lagos sponsorship on Facebook live, the 10 and I was like, okay, that's, that's reasonable. And then when my wife and I were, um, at another wedding with some of her relatives, they had brought a bottle of this. Uh, the Glamourangi 14, and I was pleasantly surprised by just how how tasty it was. So, um, well, here's a here's a little um, tasting note for them for their uh, Quinta 14 year bottling note. Mm. Uh, it says that Glamourangi's Quinta Ruban 12 year old is a fantastic port cask finished expression, and the distillery has now developed under the recipe with the Quinta Ruban 14 year old, whatever that means. The whiskey is initially matured in bourbon casks before being moved over to ruby port casks, imparting waves of scrumptious fruit chocolate notes to the spirit. Superb as a postprandial dram. Wow, that's a lot of special. It smells uh, pretty good. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty yeah, excited. This, you know how this, I feel about them sweet whiskeys. So I was gonna say this. This smells like a Justin whiskey. Yeah, boy, a whiskey worthy of Justin. Uh, we got these in a, a little sampler pack, which was nice, that had a few other glimmerangies in it that we'll dive into at some point on the show. So, this smells very much like a fruit tart. Yeah. There's a lot of um, sugar, sort of sort of like a milky pastry, almond pastry. There's almost... Um, and there is a cocoa note in there, too. There's almost some cedar in there. Cedar or pine, but very light, very um, distant. Yeah, that fruitiness, yeah, it almost reminds me a little bit of like fruit pizza with like the custard on it and that flaky um, tart, as it were. The if you if you smell it long enough, you start on the back, at least on the back of my palate, I'm getting a little bit of chocolate. Yeah. It yeah, smells really quite good. Very pleasant. Um, not nearly as dark or heavy or like indulgent as something like Bunahaven. Um, yeah. But also not as light as some of the other uh, fruity scotches we've had. This is definitely definitely a heavier scent, a, a richer scent. Wealthy, if it were. Wow. As it were. <laughs> well, on that a note, wealthy uh, scent. let's taste this thing. Cheers. Mm. I like that a lot. Actually, I, had a I, I, you'd I say think that. that's quite good. <laughs> oh, there's like almond, dark fruits, a little bit of orange. 
some some like chocolatey sort of mousse almost raisin oh yeah oh that's cool that is good according to whiskey advocate uh this was uh, one of the top 20 whiskeys of 2019 and it was ranked number nine on that list um at my local liquor store it is 56 dollars for a full-size bottle of this okay definitely definitely hits it's definitely in that price range if not more i was gonna say i thought because i haven't bought a bottle of it i I thought it would be more expensive than that Um, Mm -hmm. because it drinks more expensive than that for sure that's that's quite delicious for a 14 year old scotch too that's a pretty good like pretty good price point Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna see. I, I'm definitely. This is a bottle that I'm gonna try to find a full size one of. A oh, man, stick next to my Belvani. Yeah, man. Also getting more, um, of those like orchard fruits. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is is it's almost like I'm being tricked because that sort of chocolatey mousse kind of flavor mixed with the fruit. And the almond is almost giving me a banana taste. Hmm. It's right on the cusp of what could be interpreted as a banana. Yeah, but I think that's the the nuttiness, the fruitiness. Yeah. That little bit of cocoa. All blending together. Um, there's also... Mm. There's a little bit of bite to it, too. It's a pleasant bite. It's a little yeah, bit of a like oaky, it, spicy bite. It's not... Yeah. Yeah. It's not like overly... Um, soft. No, maybe a hint of ginger, like like a little bit of ginger spice, not like straight on ginger root, which is one of my favorite like uh things to do when I have a sore throat or I don't feel particularly well. It's just like a friend of mine from the Adirondacks mm-hmm. who I'd hike with. He'd like just chop off a piece of ginger root and eat it raw, and it did help. It's like the Lord knew yeah. that uh we would have ailments. I am and would. I am. Pl- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would believe that he would probably know that. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a pleasant, uh, pleasant dram right there. Man, so good. I love it. Brilliant. Absolutely Very good. brilliant. Just like uh, the prayers uh, collected in the Valley of Vision. Indeed. Uh, if you have a value of vision, folks, which we recommend you get, uh, because it really is a wonderful addition uh, to your collection, and it will, uh, no doubt, it will no doubt help your prayer life. It will at least, at the very least, encourage, if not perhaps inform your prayer life a bit. Um, we are turning to page 24, looks like. Wonderful. It is God-honored. I need just a flashlight on my phone because I don't have any light in here. Uh, So guys, if you'll pray with me, that would be wonderful. O God, praise waiteth for thee, and to render it is my noblest exercise. This is thy due from all thy creatures, for all thy works display thy attributes and fulfill thy designs. The sea, dry land, winter cold, summer heat, morning light, evening shade are full of thee, and thou givest me them richly to enjoy. Thou art King of kings and Lord of lords. At thy pleasure, empires rise and fall. All thy works praise thee and thy saints bless thee. Let me be numbered with thy holy ones. Resemble them in character and condition. Sit with them at Jesus' feet. May my religion be always firmly rooted in thy word, my understanding divinely informed, and my affections holy and heavenly, my motives simple and pure, and my heart never wrong with thee. Deliver me from the natural darkness of my own mind, from the corruptions of my heart, from the temptations to which I am exposed, from the daily snares that attend me. I am in constant danger while I am in this life. Let thy watchful eye ever be upon me for my defense. Save me from the power of my worldly and spiritual enemies and from all painful evils to which I have exposed myself. Until the day of life dawns above, let there be unrestrained fellowship with Jesus until 
fruition comes, may I enjoy the earnest of my inheritance and the first fruits of the Spirit. Until I finish my course with joy, may I pursue it with diligence and every part display the resources of the Christian and adorn the doctrine of thee, my God, in all things. Amen. I think um, I think we would all do well to to reflect, particularly during this time when it says, "At thy pleasure, empires rise and fall." Mm. <laughs> yeah. At a time when it seems like our empire may be falling, it's not outside the hand of God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We we remember that the people of God are pilgrim people. They are yes. passing through. They are exiles, and that while we are to seek, you know, just like the exiles to Babylon, right? In many ways, seek the welfare of the city while you're there, right? Seek the good, seek what is right, you know, pursue justice and mercy mm. while you're there, mm-hmm. but don't put your trust in chariots or horses, right? From I'm mixing here, you know, a little bit with Jeremiah there, but yeah, but don't put your trust in the strength of nations or the strength of leaders, put your trust in the rock, who is able upon whom all the nations break like waves, right? Amen. Let us look to him. And as we reflect on this God that we worship, uh, we've come into such a cloud of confusion in our day and age, particularly when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine has been misconstrued, manipulated and twisted in all kinds of ways by people with various agendas, some very well-intentioned and some much more nefarious trying to sneak in doctrines that, um, have nothing to do with biblical Christianity. That's and right. so our guest tonight, um, this is a previously recorded interview, but our guest tonight uh, is Dr. Matthew Barrett, and he's written a book called Simply Trinity, um, which falls on the heels of his book, None Greater. And I can't recommend the book highly enough as a, a primer, not only to the doctrine of the Trinity in its historic context and its biblical, exegetical, and systematic, but also in the context of classical Christian theism with divine simplicity aseity, uh, and inseparable operations, as well as the eternal relations of origin, mm-hmm. which are all mm-hmm. very much lost in contemporary evangelicalism, even among so-called reformed oh, yeah. believers. So, oh, yeah. very excited for the interview tonight. I don't know, Justin, uh, what are your thoughts before we uh, kick it over to that discussion? Yeah, I think in a day and age when there's so much confusion uh, about the nature of God and who God is, uh, there are few doctrines I think that we can um, focus on um, as intensely as this one right now. I mean, some of the most well-known preachers are, are, are either modalists or tritheists. Some of the biggest cults are that way right now. And so understanding who God is um, as a Trinitarian being uh, is incredibly important. And so I am super excited for this discussion. I'm super excited to... Um, to learn, to grow, to be edified, to be sanctified, uh, as we as we talk about simply Trinity. Indeed. And without further ado, there we go. I'm your co-host Blake Courtright, uh, joined by my Baptistic co-host Justin Van Riper, who is actually a little behind schedule tonight. So uh, I'm actually joined tonight by another Creed Baptist, a theologian. Uh, um, somebody who I've really enjoyed his work, uh, and I'm grateful to have him on the podcast. This is Dr. Matthew Barrett. He is the professor of theology, or he is a professor of theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the editor of Credo Magazine and the host of the Credo Podcast. So if you're not already listening and reading, head over and be sure to follow for some really incredible content. Um, If you're listening to this show, I know you enjoy kind of technical nerdy theology. And so you can go and listen with people who are a little more qualified uh, and and get a little more in depth with them. Um, Dr. Barrett is the author of several books, but we're here tonight specifically to speak about one that I finished earlier this year that just blew me away um, with its approachability um, and yet not sparse on technical details or historical theology, something that uh, I, I find can be difficult to navigate as I've read works of theology um, varying in in technicality or depth or in uh, accessibility to a lay audience. So tonight we'll be speaking about Simply Trinity, the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit by Matthew Barrett. Dr. Barrett, thank you for coming onto the show this evening. 
Hey, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the Trinity. It's it's been great. We uh, earlier this year we had a whole mini series. Uh, we we had done a couple episodes on theology proper last year. Picked it up this year and uh, ended up doing a multi part series on the Trinity. Um, so our listeners are familiar with inseparable operations, simplicity, classical theism. But let me ask you, looking at the landscape of the Trinity discussion, particularly in more reformed and and kind of quasi-reformed circles as it's been uh, unfolding over the last 10 or 15 years, really. What prompted you to write a book about simply Trinity, about this unmanipulated doctrine of the Trinity? Well, I think the first thing I have to say is that I I didn't write the book as if um, this is a doctrine that is entirely removed uh, from my own story. Mm. And I think that's important to say from the beginning, uh, because I think that uh, many readers might find themselves resonating um, with my story in terms of, as I reflect from the very start, how the Trinity has been taught in many evangelical churches, institutions, denominations. Um, and, and this is in one sense across the board, whether it's Baptist or Presbyterian or yeah. uh, and so on. Um, one of the things I experienced early on was that the Trinity was more or less presented uh, in a very formulaic way. Mm, yeah. um, you, you come at the Trinity as if it's a problem. Hmm. And uh, assumed in this approach is a very uh, heavy biblicism in, in the negative sense of that word, yeah. um, in which you you approach the Trinity looking to the scriptures, but but really looking to just use the scriptures, uh, looking for certain proof texts to say, okay, God must be one, or there must be three that are called Father, Son, and Spirit. And then you, at some point, have to take a, a bit of a leap of faith. Uh, to somehow end up uh, saying what uh, the Nicene Creed says and introducing language like essence and persons. And um, I think there's a bit of irony in this approach because uh, it leaves the Trinity so ambiguous at best uh, that you can read uh, any number of uh, views into this doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. And in my experience, more often than not in our circles, uh, we tend to take this, uh, this biblicist approach to the Trinity and we start to just assume, whether we realize it or not, certain social categories and vocabulary. We start uh, just thinking of the Trinity in terms of roles or even hierarchy. And, and not just in terms of, say, an incarnation, uh, but even the imminent life of God in eternity. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then added to this has been another uh, track, if we can call it that, uh, which has been an ongoing discussion about eternal generation. Because mm-hmm. uh, in the last several decades, eternal generation <clears throat> has been outright abandoned. Mm-hmm by evangelicals, yeah. uh, which makes it nearly impossible at that point to affirm, say, the Nicene Creed. Hmm. Or, and, and part of the reason why that was the case was, uh, again, comes back to that biblicism. Um, hmm. I don't see a chapter and verse, um, or I'm not convinced by a word study, and so I'm going to jettison this historic doctrine of the faith. Um, when you, now, that's changed in recent years, of course. Um, though sometimes the method has stayed the same. But when you combine all of this together, um, I think that evangelicals in particular don't realize how indebted we have been to the rise of social Trinitarianism in the 20th century. Mm. Uh, And again, this too is ironic, because uh, more often than not, we sort of point the finger and say, oh, well, that's them. (laughs) That's modern theology, and, and that's not us. Uh, But the irony of it all is uh, the language we use, our methods, and the type of 
social trinity we started articulating doesn't look all that different uh, from from the social trinitarian movement of the last century. Mm. And so I, I really start off the book saying um, it's in it's in the air. It, it, this isn't this isn't like uh, oh we've we've sort of adopted this view and we can just let go of it. Um, it's in the air we breathe, and uh, it's a bit shocking, especially when. Uh, and this was just par for the course in the 20th century, um, we start to make the same move as modern theologians. And, and what I mean by that is once we have, once we've de- kind of redefined the Trinity in terms of a society, uh, in terms of persons with their own centers of consciousness or will, or, or just defining unity in a functional way, once we start inching in that direction, uh, well, it becomes very convenient then to, to uh, just connect the dots very directly from the Trinity, uh, this social definition of the Trinity, and whatever particular social mm-hmm. agenda that, that we might have. And so there's a famous saying in the 20th century that says uh, that the Trinity has become our social program. And mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, we're just as guilty of that as, as many modern theologians. That was a point that really stood out to me. Um, that you made early in the book about, and you gave really good, like, you know, by way of survey, but the examples were poignant and I would recommend, uh, I recommended the book multiple times in our Trinity series. So I'm recommending it again. Now, if you haven't read or listened to it, go get a copy guys, because I've seen this in our reformed Calvinistic, you know, quasi confessional circles. I've seen people on the one end, as you cited, trying to, uh, push a, a theologically liberal agenda, a social agenda, you know, the egalitarian example, right? This idea that, well, we're uh, the persons of the Trinity are, are co-equal and therefore there's no distinction in all these things, you know. Or the flip side of the extreme patriarchal movement or the uh, eternal relations of authority and submission movement that's very aggressive there and saying, well, look, because the, the son submits to the father, then this is the way this works. And um, and I thought the point that you made was so, it, it resonated with me really strongly that this, the doctrine isn't for our uh, anthropology. Like it, it doesn't exist for us to um, to mine some social theories out of in either direction. And I thought it was, it struck me because I've seen it more in one side than the other. But when you put the two examples side by side, it was like, oh yeah, there it is. We're, we're doing this and we ought not to do this. Um, and I've seen these things too. You know, I've, I've read uh, Dolezal's book, All That Is in God on Simplicity and working through Adonis Vidu's book on Inseparable Operations. But in all these works, and yours a little bit more directly and Dolezal's more um, at a somewhat technical level, but in this very accessible book, you've managed to tackle something that as you said it's in the air it's like it's hard to pinpoint a particular um space where it isn't touching in in what we're doing so as you were approaching the book was it always decided to be written for this level or were you did you have a more um technical you know scholar focused book in mind or was it always meant to be a little bit more of a popular level book that brought this really important and technical subject to the people in the church? Well, uh, I'm currently uh, writing a, a large <clears throat> doctrine of God. Ooh. And I'm writing this uh, for Baker Academic. And so that will be my more academic um, yeah. attempt to um, really provide uh, Protestants and, and even Reformed Protestants with a doctrine of God um, that is really quite different than than many of the doctrine of God volumes that have come out in the past. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> more often than not, um, since you mentioned, you know, Dalazal and, and others, um, hmm. they've pointed this out as well. The way that we have approached theology proper in, in, uh, in our own circles, uh, well, it's very much indebted to modern theology, uh, mm-hmm. what, whether you want to call it a theistic mutualism or personalism. Yep. Uh, David Bentley Hart calls it a, a, a monopolytheism. 
Yeah. Um, in which we, we sort of come to the doctrine of God and we begin to domesticate him. Mm. Uh, this sometimes happens in a very evangelical flavor in which we, we like one attribute, but we don't like the other. Yeah. And we start to follow that pattern, yeah. um, not realizing, you know, this is a whole. Uh, you, you, you remove one of these, uh, everything else suffers as a result. So mm. anyways, there uh, I'm going to be providing a more academic, mm. uh, a more academic uh, presentation. But in this book, Simply Trinity, uh, here, I really thought I, I want to get to the pastor in the pulpit I want to get to the the beginner the beginner student, uh, maybe even uh, reach into the pew a little bit to to those churchgoers who are more theologically minded, um, because I I really am convinced that even though we're we may talk about these things at an academic level, um, like you said with your own experience, you you see this everywhere in the yeah. church as well, and um, I think that it's it's had a number of pretty consequential effects, uh, mm. very negative effects in the church in particular. Oh, yeah. um, this book, Simply Trinity, is coming on the heels of uh, my, my other book at this level, which is None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And in that book, uh, I introduce Christians to attributes that I think many have never even heard of before, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, yeah. Simplicity, which you mentioned a minute ago. Or uh, immutability or impassibility. Mm. Uh, these, um, in my experiences, as I speak at churches or even talk to beginner students in the classroom, they've never heard of any of these. <laughs> yeah. um, and as a result, uh, we tend to think about God in a way that uh, makes him greater than us, but, but not altogether different than us. Mm. And uh, right. at that point, we, we begin to to create a God in our own image. Well, as, as we move into the discussion of the Trinity with this book, um, that theme continues. Um, and, and here I use the word unmanipulated to, to convey something similar. Mm. Um, when we look at biblical and historical orthodoxy, especially as it's summarized, say, in the Nicene Creed in the fourth century, over against heresy, um, and then we follow that. We follow that stream. Uh, there, there is a, a major break that occurs in the modern period, uh, in which the Trinity is redefined, and all of a sudden, the Trinity's simplicity, for example, it's 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 looked at with suspicion. In many cases, it's just abandoned altogether. Mm. Well, that then opens the conversation. A whole new conversation. Well, then, what if it's not simplicity? Uh, what is it that mm -hmm. that unites the Trinity? Uh, and, and you have wild, all kinds of wild proposals. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some even saying, um, uh, "Well, the Trinity—it's like a, a divine dance uh, in which you have diff different individuals, and oh, look how in sync they are with one another." Right. Um, well. This might be a type of unity that defines us, the way we cooperate with each other as, as different persons and really separate individuals. But this is terribly insufficient when talking about Father, Son, and Spirit who have, the, have in common the, the one single and simple mm -hmm. divine nature. Yeah. Um, so these, and that's just one example, uh, th this type of, of shift that takes place in my book, I call it a, a trinity drift. Yeah. Uh, we don't realize it, but we have slowly uh, drifted from a biblical and orthodox understanding of the trinity, uh, and, and we have instead created a, tr a trinity very much made in the image of our society. Hmm. And, uh, well, then all of a sudden it becomes very, very easy and convenient whether it's on purpose or maybe unwittingly to sort of turn this like a wax nose or even manipulate the Trinity uh, for our particular social program. So all that to say, um, I, I actually spend a majority of the book uh, 
really the first seven chapters and then um, the last two chapters just trying to represent what what a biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity even looks like. And so I introduce, I have a whole chapter on, on simplicity, for example. I have a whole chapter looking at eternal relations of origin. What is it that distinguishes the, the persons? And then I, I have a concluding chapter on, okay, well, if, if this is how they are one, well, well, what does it mean to say that they that the external operations of the Trinity are undivided? Uh, we call this inseparable operations. And and how does that affect our our communion, our fellowship with this mm-hmm. Trinity? So a majority of the book is um is is spent uh really trying to introduce Orthodox Trinitarianism afresh. And it's really important, as you said in our in our current culture, evangelicals, our stories are different in the sense of where we came from, but similar in the sense of how where we uh found our way back. Um I grew up in a full-blown Unitarian situation and was like arguing. And I, and I was at a Christian college that I won't name with friends who were studying undergraduate level theology and they could not answer my questions yeah. and they could not answer my proof texting and they could not answer. And it just took time and the Lord working on me and seeing the scriptures afresh and seeing Christ in the old Testament and slowly but surely finding my way into orthodoxy and and finally with joy embracing this beautiful doctrine but it took time but i it took me so long to encounter people that actually could address the questions the kinds of questions that i had and and help me to see well wait a second you're yeah you have your proof text machine gun if you will but you're not actually addressing the question of transcendence and imminence you're not addressing the question of creator and and so on and so forth. And all that to say, I think that it's a very widespread issue, as you've alluded to, um, that so many people, even in, in academia, don't have any concept of these doctrines that the church has defended for two millennia. And I think it's a great service to the church, to the pastors, to the elders, to the educated laity, to have a book like this that's very readable and and not sparse on... The technical details either you, you're talking about simplicity and eternal relations of origin and things that um that many people hadn't even heard as you said and, and that was very true of me and my peers um and also for me it was a lot easier and more accessible to digest the content from this level book um as opposed to some of the more technical stuff like all that is in god which i'm indebted to as simplicity was finally the the, the piece that sealed the trinity for me um, and made sense because I could not let go of monotheism and I couldn't understand it because everybody was explaining social Trinitarianism to me. And I said, this doesn't make sense. I can't accept this because three centers of consciousness is three gods. It's polytheism. And when I finally got to simplicity, but it was, it took me multiple reads to wrap my head around what was happening in the book. But with this, you've taken this doctrine and made it so you uh, distilled to borrow from our the podcast it's you you distilled it in such a way that i could i could just marinate in it and enjoy it and it wasn't um and no disrespect to the other authors because they're incredible and and really dense but i, I want to emphasize this is tough material and to, for our listeners and dr barrett has made it very um accessible and it may still take another read of a chapter to, to especially eternal relations of origin i revisited that but at the same time, you've presented it in such a way that's made it easy. So I wanted to commend you for that. And on that note, um, you've talked about social trinity, and you do call out some specific Trinitarian uh, heterodox views, if you will, that have cropped up, um, particularly around certain movements in the church. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what's the big deal about the uh, eternal functional subordination or eternal... Uh, subordination of the son or eternal relations of authority and submission why is this concerning to you pastorally and and academically well it is concerning on on so many levels i, I think uh the first thing we have to say is it it's concerning that it was just assumed for the last for several decades now what three decades at least yeah. um and it was just assumed to be biblical, to be orthodox. 
mm-hmm. um, almost unquestioned uh, in, in large part because you have major evangelicals teaching it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in many ways, the, 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 the giveaway, though, is, and, and I don't actually, in my book, Simply Trinity, I don't actually even address e, uh, EFS or ESS until chapter eight, almost to the end yeah. of the book. Um, so, so I don't want listeners to think, oh, the whole book's about this. It's actually no, not. not at all. But uh, one of the things I felt I had to do was uh, very early on in the book, I had to give a, a bit of a um, introduction to just what what in the world has happened in the modern era. Yeah. Uh, what why are we describing the Trinity as um, a cooperative society of individuals or, or separate agents who are um, just defined by by mutual love and what has happened? And so I, I do a little bit of history to say, okay, we got to, we got to step back. And, and one of the, the advantages uh, of that is by the time I get to the end of the book and actually address EFS, I think it, it's actually crystal clear that the way that EFSers are just describing the Trinity isn't, it's, it's coded. It's just marinated in a, a type of social trinitarianism. So when they start, um, I mean, very very early on too, uh, they they've sort of hit, have evolved more recently. But very early on, they are very suspicious, if not outright rejected, ideas like divine simplicity, um, or eternal generation. Now, now more recently, they've they've uh, accepted some of those ideas, but this was happening. And there were very few questions raised. Um, I think one of the reasons it was happening was because they had, had without maybe even realizing, had, had very much embodied a social paradigm to define the Trinity in the first place. And so persons were not uh, at first defined in terms of, um, you know, you think of the Son and, and the Son being begotten from the Father. You think of John's language in his gospel. Yes. Uh, rather, the son was defined in terms of, of, and the father was defined in terms of roles, right. uh, roles of, of, of hierarchy. Now, they would qualify, say so it was a functional hierarchy, and they're still equal in essence. But nonetheless, this is what defines the father as father and the, the son as son, is the father must be a greater glory and a greater supremacy, um, a greater power uh, than, than the son who is who is who is less and subordinate in those senses. Um, and likewise, they move from there to the Holy Spirit. Um, I think one of, one of and, and of course, as you mentioned a minute ago, um, defining the Trinity in this way then became, um, for them, uh, well, it just created a, 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 a direct line then to their gender discussions and debates. Yeah. So that if, if the Trinity is this, um, this type of hierarchy a type of societal uh, hierarchy. Well, then they said, well, then we have a, a perfect uh, paradigm and prototype uh, for male female relationships in marriage, yeah. in the church, and even wider society. Yeah. Uh, the wife is subordinate and, and so on. So notice, notice what's happening here. I, I found this incredibly ironic because if you go back to the 20th century and just look at modern theologians, um, they were doing the same thing with other issues. You know, you look at a Jurgen Moltmann, for example, in which he, long, long before us, he, he's saying, uh, yeah, we need to redefine the Trinity as a, as a, as a community, as a society. Uh, we need to get rid of um, ideas like divine simplicity, definitely any type of monarchy. We got to get rid of all those ideas. Um, and, and for him, um, well, then this is, this, this social Trinity then becomes really the, the ideal paradigm for politics. And for him, that means socialism. Well, this is just one example among dozens. Uh, Others would go to church polity and do the same thing. Uh, One, one individual wanting to use uh, a a social Trinity uh, for high church uh, and and bishops having uh, more authority and under those under others wanted to use a social Trinity for congregationalism to say, no, there's an equality. And so, um, and then, and then it got brought into the gender discussion. I've seen folks even use this for ecology. I mean, it just doesn't end. Yeah. 
the, I think I think what what is happening? I think what's happening is um, we're still EFS was still operating by the same rules of the game, the same paradigm, and that is defining um, the persons, um, not so much of, as, as eternal relations of origin and the Father unbegotten, the Son begotten, and the Spirit spirated, but as those who have their own individual roles. And notice from that. Uh, relationships uh, more more in our modern sense of the term, uh, in which uh, you have the societal uh, relationships occurring uh, of cooperation. Well, more recently they they they've sort of backpedaled a little bit and said, okay, we 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 will accept eternal generation um, and even simplicity. Uh, but in one sense, uh, they've doubled down on this sure. functional subordination because they've said, well, good, we can affirm eternal generation. And, and now this is actually perfect because we can say, well, this subordination of the sun, this actually flows from and within eternal generation. And this is so disturbing because now we we're actually using, I mean, there's one thing to reject. I mean, that was bad too, to reject Orthodox categories and, and creeds. Uh, but now we're we're accepting them, but then we're going to use them in a way that they were never in, in, meant to be, be uh, meant to be used. But I think you know beyond that, there's there's other concerns as well. Uh, I think that um, there's a conflation occurring between the economy of salvation, what occurs, for example, in the incarnation, and who God is apart from the world, apart mm-hmm. from creation, apart from salvation. Um, they they are whether they will admit it or not. I think that they are projecting uh, certain things that occur in in for the purpose of of the mission of the son, like his humiliation, um, his as they would call it his submission or subordination. Um, they're they're then projecting that into the imminent life of God as if that's something that defines the son as son, even apart from the world. Um, so this type of, of projection that's taking place, it, I think it confuses, uh, in a serious way, it confuses, um, who God is in himself and then what the son does by virtue of the incarnation and his humanity, um, not for his sake, but for our sake, for humbling himself, becoming, becoming obedient, learning obedience, um, even to the point of death. Um, they they take these biblical concepts and and I think they project those into the imminent life of God. Once you make something like subordination, even if it's functional, once you make that person defining apart from the world, there's a huge burden on your back because at that point you have to to somehow explain um, how it is that the son. Um, can be subordinate in role, but nonetheless remains equal in essence as they claim. The problem is when you look at the way um, the the pro-Nicene tradition has articulated the Trinity, it understands that, well, there's one single, simple, undivided essence in the Trinity, and this essence has three modes of subsistence, um, and they went on to explain what that meant uh, in terms of oh the son is 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 begotten from the father who is unbegotten and the spirit is well the spirit is spirated from the father and the son and notice they are distinguishing the persons but they're also laboring to make sure that this divine essence isn't some some other thing some fourth thing out there. And I think this, this really gets at the heart of the problem, because with EFS, uh, they seem to treat it that way, as if, well, the son can be equal in essence, uh, but subordinate in role. Um, well, no, uh, because he is a subsistence of that same simple, undivided divine essence. As, as soon as you introduce subordination into the son um, in the imminent life of God, how is it not littered throughout the divine essence itself? Um so there's there's some of these really serious um, theological issues going on. I also think there are um, some more practical problems that are occurring. Um, I think that when when we talk about 
certain passages of Scripture, we have to be careful, very, very careful, um, that we are not misunderstanding their point. Um, so, so just to give you one example, uh, if if we start defining the Trinity, you know, apart from creation and salvation, at, in terms of a of a hierarchy, um, even if it's a functional hierarchy, well, it sort of spoils the incarnation. Yeah. Um, the the what's taking place there? Well, this seems to be something the Son must do anyways. But when you read Paul, or when you read the letter to the Hebrews, they don't seem to think in those terms. In fact, they seem to describe the incarnation as something scandalous. Can you believe it that the Son of God himself would humble himself? In other words, this is not something the Son does anyways. Yes. He, would, he would humiliate himself to this degree mm. for your salvation. He would, he would even learn obedience as... What, what, this is scandalous. So, uh, but this is so necessary, right? To explain why grace is so amazing. Yes. I think that, I think that this is missed. Um, and, mm-hmm. and ironically enough, um, we actually lose out on the amazing nature of grace itself. So all that, I mean, I could go on and on, but all that to say, there are some issues with biblical interpretation. There's some really uh, in-depth problems in terms of just theology itself. Uh, how would we even define the Trinity apart from the world? And then there's a misreading of uh, everything from the incarnation, and I would say even the implications that then has um, that then has for, for how we define worship in the church. Uh, all that to say, um, when we come to this issue, I, in my book, it's not The way I describe it is, this is not a matter of just deciding on this text or that text or this issue or that issue. I think people have to understand this is a whole different paradigm. (laughs) And until you you let go of it, which is so hard to do because we've we've been taught it for so long, until you let go of it, you're not, you're you're going to, you're just going to keep trying to read uh, a modern social trinity back into biblical concepts, back into mm. even Nicene concepts, yeah. and as a result, um, you, you're still trying to, uh, to sort of have your cake and eat it too, not realizing these two things are are completely antithetical to one another. Hey, uh, I'm Justin. <laughs> I'm here now. <laughs> um, so, uh, question uh, regarding regarding this. So. Uh, how does this, or how, how does this not rather uh, sort of lead us into uh, regarding like Catholic theology, Thomism, and things of that nature, right? With the the distinction between essence and existence, and so on. Well, I think, and I at the beginning of my book, um, I have a little fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to talk about the dream team um, because I, I love the game of basketball and uh, maybe not all of my readers will, but um, I think some of them might appreciate that. And uh, why do I do that? Well, I talk about the dream team, you know, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. <laughs> the reason I do this is be- I, I, I apply this to our present moment to say, you know, we've made all kinds of assumptions. We've just assumed so much of the Trinity that we've been taught is, is just the way to go. And we don't realize that we are completely out of step uh, with the church universal, or we might say the church Catholic with a small c, not Roman Catholic, um, that has come before us. I think that if we were to resurrect them from the dead and bring them back, they would, they would just be shocked <laughs> sure <laughs> uh, and they, they may not recognize the trinity that that we uh are, are claiming mm-hmm. um all that to say um i think that it is to our advantage to go back and with humility to say you know what maybe we have something to learn from an athanasius or an augustine yeah. um maybe we we should actually listen to say uh a thomas aquinas when he's um, interpreting John 1. Uh, many of these individuals, they were biblical commentators, uh, which is often forgotten because 
because we so often turn to their theological works, which are so great. Um, so it's really at this point that I say, uh, whether it's an Augustine or a Thomas Aquinas, um, they may have differences on all kinds of, you know, other theological matters, but isn't it amazing that when it comes to Christian orthodoxy, the Trinity, uh, the attributes of God, the person and work of Christ, uh, and even, even on uh, other issues like election and predestination, isn't it fascinating, the continuity we see? It's, a, it's, mm. it's, um, it's actually mind-boggling uh, when you think about how separated they are by centuries. Um, and so I think it's at this point where we can go back and say, well, wait a minute. In our modern period, we seem to be defining the unity of the Trinity in terms of, of uh, some type of societal interaction, uh, some type of cooperative effort, some type of functionality. Why was it that everyone from a Gregory of Nazianzus to a, a Thomas Aquinas or, or a Baptist like John Gill, why is it that they all seem to be singing the same tune, mm-hmm. saying, no, it's these persons have the one simple essence in common. So this idea of, of divine simplicity was so crucial. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think one of the reasons we've struggled here is because we, we sort of bought into social Trinitarianism when it says, oh, we need to go with the East, not the West, as if the East are, you know, really get us to the, the three persons in the West. Well, they're just obsessed with, you know, the unity of the Trinity. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, it is kind of comical because when you go back and read the Cappadocians, uh, when they describe eternal generation, for example, uh, which is so pivotal, right, to the Nicene Creed, and here's where it spends most of its time. Uh, true God of true God. Uh, uh, and then it goes on to say, light from light. I think here building off of, of scripture. Um, begotten, not made. Mm. And so as it's emphasizing this, as, as many of them went on to elaborate then on the creed, they said, well, this must mean then that this doctrine of eternal generation, this not only distinguishes the son as son, after all, what else would it mean to be son? What And what else would it mean to be father? Um, it's almost too simple to say. Uh, but it not only distinguishes uh, the father and the son, but could it be that it also protects the equality and the unity of the son with the father? And so from there, I mean, it's amazing. Everyone from an Athanasius to a Francis Turton start saying things like, well, to be son, that that means simply that uh, the son is begotten from the father's divine nature. And so notice here, uh, they're trying to use language that, yes, distinguishes the persons, but at the same time, they're very, very emphatic. This same language is meant to actually keep us from separating and dividing the persons mm-hmm. and and really dispensing with in the end uh their their unity or their simplicity and likewise they would they do something similar with the holy spirit hmm. yeah that's great um so i know you're on a time crunch and uh i i literally just got home from work <laughs> um uh but uh so if our listeners as we wrap up here as our listeners um investigate this, what might be some recommended uh, listening or reading that they can turn to that you might recommend uh, for them to to maybe start um, at a fundamental level and then go from there? Yeah, you know, it's it's a really good question. Um, there's, there's so much to say at this point, but maybe I can uh, just say, recommend a few things. Uh, I think, first of all, if, if they pick up my book, Simply Trinity, uh, there's a couple things that will help them. There's not only a glossary in the back, but right out of the gate, chapter one and chapter three in particular, I introduce them to that dream team. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to meet Athanasius. They're going to meet Gregory of Nisa or Gregory of Nazianza um, and, and so many more. And um, I think that if, if they uh, pick up some of the church fathers 
I think they'll be surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only how accessible they are at points, but also they they seem to understand so much is at stake, mm. including salvation. Yeah. Um, and so when you read like Gregory, his little book on God and Christ, uh, you can pick this up. It's it's a, it just has a blue cover and it's it's uh, published as uh, part of the popular patristic series. Uh, you find it for ten dollars on online. Here, here you have uh, Gregory who has a pastoral heart. Uh, these were orations um, that he gave uh, to to the church and others in the midst of controversy, trying to carefully distinguish. Well, what what do we mean when we we say that the Spirit, for example? is spirated from the Father and the Son. And, and how does that then set us up to then describe why the Spirit is given to us by the Father and the Son in uh, to indwell us, to sanctify us, to perfect us, and so much more? Um, they, you, you also might want to read uh, one of my favorites, a, a Puritan like John Owen. Uh, John yes. Owen wrote a book called Communion with the Trinity, and uh, this is really where I end my book, Simply Trinity, because John Owen basically takes uh, biblical Christian Trinitarian orthodoxy, and he asks the question, well, how does this then affect our fellowship with this God? And, and he's going to talk about, well, if this, if this God is one, if, if Father, Son, Spirit then act as one, well, could it be that whenever we come into communion or fellowship with one person, the Trinity, we actually are experiencing an influence of all three? What a thought. Wow. And, and could it sound that, like some inseparable operations. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but my point here is uh, we be, you begin to pick up on uh, the ways that they are trying to solidify orthodox an orthodox understanding of the Trinity, but very much for the purpose of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and for understanding, well, then what does it mean to live in communion with this triune God? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So those are just a couple places uh, you could start. I think that if you are patient and eager, you'll fall in love with so many of these authors and you'll discover you know what? They're actually far more faithful guides than 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 so much of of what's written in the modern period. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. We always recommend reading old dead guys. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, one thing that kept coming back to me is we went on earlier in the conversation with the issues of social trinitarianism, and is we lose his his transcendence or we lose his imminence. Mm-hmm. And Bavink in uh, in the recently republished Wonderful Works of God is so crystallized on pulling us yeah. along to hold we must yeah. maintain yeah. the absolute imminence of god and the absolute transcendence of god over and against the heresies that lie on either side of that precipice and yeah. um so so good dr barrett thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh yeah. diving in we loved it we love talking about the trinity man um, i i hope we uh we continue this for many, many years to come as we go through theology, because it's, yeah. the, the further we yeah. go, the more I realize, the more depth there is to see. <laughs> um, I think that's a, I'm going to very badly paraphrase Augustine, right? I can, I can see, <laughs> I can see the depths, but I can't see the bottom when I look, no. uh, when no. I peer in, yeah. something like that. Hey there, Distilling Theology listeners. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode, our interview with Dr. Matthew Barrett. I want to apologize for how long it's taken me to get this out to you, but we're really excited to bring it to you. And we are thrilled to announce that we have a new giveaway running now through Friday, May 6th. You're not going to want to miss this one. Thanks to Baker Books, we have not one, but two copies of both of Dr. Barrett's books to give away. That is Simply Trinity and None Greater, his book on the attributes of God. So our grand prize winner will receive a copy of both books, as well as a pair of our Distilling Theology Glencairn glasses. And our second place winner will also receive both books, as well as a Distilling Theology quote mug. 
So you guys head over to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway and enter before next Friday for your opportunity to win those two books, uh, potentially the pair of glasses or the coffee mug. Either way, it's all to the glory of God, and hopefully it's an opportunity to grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord and to better understand these deep doctrines relating to the God that we worship, his attributes and his trinity. Uh, Thank you again for listening. A huge thank you to Dr. Barrett and a huge thank you to Baker Books for making this possible. Now to the end of the show. Guys, thanks for listening. And whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria.